Welcome to the City Reach Baptist podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Um, good evening. My name's uh, Damien Chesson and uh, together with my wife Rachel, we're uh, attendees usually in the morning services, um, but uh, it's great to be with you here this evening. Been here a couple of times in the evening and also... Um, been a part of Thrive this year, and it's been really fantastic. And um, feel just yeah honoured uh, and privileged to be up here sharing with you this evening um, as we continue our series on bad advice. So I'm just going to pray. Uh, so please, please join me. Father God, we just acknowledge that um, everything we have comes from you. And our very lives, all our hopes and dreams and experiences, and um, everything is found in you. And we 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 love you, and we invite you to speak to us tonight. We I just want to acknowledge that um, for me to use my wisdom and my words to 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 shed light on this topic will be um, not helpful unless unless you're in it. And I just invite you to speak through me tonight. May um, you speak to our hearts. May you soften our hearts where they've become hard. And May you change our lives and may you reveal more to us of just how much you love us and just how much you want to, to, to direct our lives. And so we, we commit this evening to you. Amen. Alrighty, so we're uh, yeah, continuing our series on, on bad advice uh, this evening. Uh, our goal, I guess, is to, is to replace bad advice with biblical truth, which... You know, if you look at it one way, it might sound a little bit dry, but when you when you delve deeper into it, truth is just so much more powerful than the advice that we hear in our day to day. And tonight's bad advice, if I can get this uh, cranking, is live life with no regrets. Now, before I continue, you know, many of the pieces of bad advice in this series um, haven't haven't been chosen because they're you know 100% wrong and they're terrible and they're horrible, but they've actually been been chosen because there's elements of truth to them. And there's actually, there's that, you know, some of them come from, from really good intentions and there's really good, solid um, advice if you delve a little bit deeper. But the pieces of bad advice that we're looking at tend to miss the mark a little bit. You know, they might come from a good heart and they might have some, some element of truth to them, but they miss the mark. And more importantly, the truth is actually far more powerful and far more life-giving than advice that might sound good but is actually a little bit hollow. And that's what we're delving deep into tonight. And tonight's bad advice, live life with no regrets, very much falls into that category. Uh, there's, there's some really, really great in, um, intentions behind it. Um, and I want to um, unpack that a little bit before we, before we go on. And so, there's, yeah, there's some really good sort of stuff behind this that I want to address before we go on. You know, things like, I want to live my life to the fullest. Sounds a lot like what Jesus said in John 10 verses 10 about having life abundantly. I'm not going to let my mistakes define me or drag me down. Good stuff. I don't regret my mistakes because they led me, sorry, a bit of, bit of overlap there, they led me to become the person I am today. In fact, this was pretty incredible. During the week, just on Wednesday night, uh, when I had this you know, mostly prepared, I was at a, a Christmas party with some friends and I, I knew most of the people there, but there was a few that I didn't. And uh, one of the people that I didn't know um, I kind of walked into this conversation that he was having with a couple of other guys, and he was actually sharing about how he's a, he's a new Christian, and he was talking, believe it or not, about his past. And as I walked in, almost the first thing I heard him say, he was talking about some of the mistakes he'd made in the past, almost the first words I heard him say were, 
I don't regret, he kind of describes the mistakes, I don't regret these mistakes because God used them to lead me, lead me to become the person I am today and uh, yeah, he said, lead me to the person I am today and help me, to, yeah, help me to learn that that was not the right way to live. Now, there's so much of what he said there that makes me want to cheer. Like, honestly, that, so much of what he says there is awesome and I totally get that. There is that part of us that looks back at our past and looks at the ups and the downs and even though some of the downs were really hard, we realize that they lead us to where we are today. And as Christians, as Christians even, we look at it and we say, all right, yep, those are mistakes, but God has led me to where I am today because of that and he's actually done some great stuff through that, so why should I regret that? Why should I regret these mistakes if God's used them to do good? And so before I go on, I just want to acknowledge that this topic can hit home with, with, with people. I, I just want to acknowledge that all of us, every single one of us, has, has things in our past that we perhaps would, have, would do differently if we had that time again. And I just want to acknowledge that before I go on. I just want to acknowledge that we all have baggage in, in one form or another. You know, we've all had experiences where we've been hurt by others or experiences where others... Uh, where we've caused hurt to others. And that even though I don't know many of you and I can't speak to your personal journey, I can't speak to your personal experiences, I promise you that God can. And so my prayer tonight is that through my words, even though I not, might not necessarily know you, and I might, you might be sitting there thinking, well, how can, I, how can this guy speak to my regrets or my lack of regrets? I can't, but God can. And so I just want to acknowledge that before I, before I continue. Because God really does show us a better way than trying to live life with no regrets. So let's move on to some of the problems with this. Because the sad reality of living in a, in a broken world, I'm going to talk a bit more about that in a little while. So the, the sad reality of, of living in a broken world is that my mistakes don't just affect me. And your mistakes don't just affect you. And I'm sure it wouldn't take, wouldn't take us many, many seconds to think about times where we have made mistakes and we've realised usually a bit too late, that, oh, wait, this isn't just between me and God or me and the universe, or it's not just about me, it's, it's actually affecting other people as well. You know, the, the, the idea of don't regret your past or live life with no regrets, it might come from a good, from, from a, a good place in a sense, but what it does is it actually really runs the risk of minimising the pain and the suffering that we cause other people. It's really risky. You know, we... We, we can, we can minimise suffering, we can minimise hurt, even if there's been apology and there's been reconciliation. You know, thinking that we can live life with no regrets and, and I guess push those regrets to the side a little bit and, and just, view, just view it through a positive lens, we always run the risk of minimising the hurt that we've done to other people and minimising the damage that we've caused to, other, caused to other people. And it can even become a bit of a prideful thing. Even if we, we think it comes from this place of, Yes, I don't want to. I don't want to let them def that, those mistakes define me. I'm I'm a better person for what happens. Those are admirable sentiments, but it can can sometimes cross over into a bit of a prideful thing. It, the, these uh, mistakes that we've made that we don't regret, they can almost become a bit of a like a, a battle scar, like a badge of honour. Like, yeah, I did those, but now here I am. It's it almost becomes yeah, I've overcome these. It it can become a bit of a prideful thing rather than about bettering yourself, which is what it's um, designed to be about. And one of the greatest things about the Bible is that it doesn't minimise pain and suffering. Boy, oh boy, like you'd have to read very far, especially in the Old Testament. There's some cracking stories in there about often, you know, often the heroes of the story that do horrible things, awful, awful, awful things. I've got a couple of examples for you. 
Um, in fact, from Matthew, I'll, I'll put it up here. This is yeah, the very first verse of the New Testament, the first gospel, the first story about Jesus Christ. And it starts triumphantly. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now that would all be well and good except for the slight issue that Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law and Judah actually impregnated his daughter-in-law and that's where Perez and Zerah were born from. And Matthew, not only doesn't he, not a, he doesn't shy away from that, he kind of advertises it. He, he puts it there very plainly for us all to see that in the line of Jesus Christ, the way that God brought Jesus into the world, part of that was this dude impregnating his daughter-in-law. Now, I won't, the, the, the story is a fairly bizarre one, and basically Judah had failed in his duty as leader of the family. Um, his, his son had died, Tamar's uh, husband had died. It was Judah's responsibility to make sure that she was cared for by um, being provided with children. That was the law in those days because she was without children, which was socially and economically crippling. And so Judah had the responsibility to make sure that she, she didn't die a widow. And he actually, he, he neglected that responsibility. He was a poor leader. He was a poor um, father and man. And she, out of desperation, I guess, tricked him into sleeping with her. And that's how it happened. So Judah had just stuffed up this situation royally. And, and this horrible, sordid story leads is one of the steps leading to Jesus being born. Then we scroll along further, a few more verses. Same genealogy. And Jesse was the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. This is a much more well-known story. David sees Bathsheba. He desires her. He takes her and sleeps with her and she becomes pregnant. And then he, to hide what he's done, he arranges for Uriah to be killed in battle and he takes Bathsheba as his wife. It's this horrible sordid story and yet again Matthew kind of advertises this in in Jesus genealogy and so what we have in these two examples and I could pick many many other examples of God actually taking horrible mistakes awful mistakes by the heroes of the Bible these 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 men and women that otherwise did fantastic things did awful mistakes and God took those and did amazing things with them like mind-blowing things with them like bringing about the birth of Jesus Christ it's about as mind-blowing as it gets and I don't want to specu- speculate too much on what Judah and David would say if they were here today, but I will a little bit. I think, I think if they were here today, they'd be overjoyed and amazed. Like, imagine, imagine the worst mistake of your life. Like, this is literally what it is here. The worst mistake of their life brought about the greatest event in human history. I mean, that's pretty amazing. But, again, at the risk of spe- speculating, I think they would still have a measure of regret. Because... Judah and David would see the, the, the awful effects that their mistakes had on other people. It wasn't just between them and God. It tore lives apart, tore lives apart. And I think despite their like, joy at what God ha, ha, has done through this, I dare say they would have a measure of regret. I think they would regret that it had to come to that. Regret that you know, God wasn't able to use them through their faithfulness. And through their their, their um, you know good deeds and and and, and faithfulness and, and and loyalty to the family, instead it had to happen through their their horrible mistakes. I think they would regret that it had to had to happen that way. And I know these are very 
extreme examples. I'm certainly not implying that, you know, those of us here who do try to live out that mantra of live life with no regrets, I'm not certainly not implying that, um, you know, any of us or you have had that kind of damage to people around you. But the point I'm making with these extreme examples is that while live life with no regrets may sound kind of attractive and wise, it, it may seem attractive as a, as a sort of a mantra to live your life by, it actually fails to properly acknowledge and delve into the fact that we are actually broken, imperfect people. I don't think it acknowledges that properly. It doesn't acknowledge the fact that we, we do hurt other people at various times in our lives, no matter how hard we try, we do. We hurt and we get hurt. And so I think it minimizes hurt, it minimizes suffering. It can actually turn into more of a prideful thing than a pursuit to grow as a person. And again, I'm not you know, implying that anyone who tries to live life with no regrets is being horrible and prideful and is a terrible human being. What I'm trying to, the point I'm trying to make here is that denying regret is actually not nearly as attractive as it might seem. And more importantly, there is a better way. Now, another issue with it is that it can be used to mask, I guess, a deeper, um, a, a, a deeper problem within ourselves. And you know, we say we say things like "live life with no regrets" and "I want to live my life to the fullest." We say things like that because we have this desire to live life to the fullest, to to get the most happiness out of life while we can. And that is a brilliant intention. That's awesome. But the fundamental problem with that. The fundamental problem is that no, no experience that this life can offer us will actually bring us ultimate satisfaction. That's a pretty, pretty crucial problem. As, as Christians, we believe in this thing called sin, which is a very important concept, but it's also one of the, I guess, concepts of the Bible that is most, I think, misunderstood and, and most um, narrowly, too narrowly understood, this concept of sin. You know, sin is, fa- is about far more than just uh, being, you know, naughty boys and girls and, and the bad stuff we do and the good stuff that we should do that we don't. Sin is far deeper than that. As Christians, we believe that this world, this creation was, this world was created for us and it was good and it was awesome and it was created for us to be enjoyed. You know, God looked at the creation and said that it was good. That's, that's no small thing. He was happy with this world he created. But we also believe that this, this world has been broken. It is, it is fallen. It is broken and corrupted by sin, almost as like there's an infection that spread throughout it. So sin is far more pervasive in, in the world and in our hearts than just the bad decisions that I might make sometimes and the bad words I might say and the bad thoughts I might have. Sin is something that underlines the whole creation, including humanity. And one misconception about Christians is that we essentially try and fight this infection by being as unsinful as we can and being as moral as we can in this, in this sinful world. And that's a very unfortunate and very limited and, and misguided view of what Christianity is. The reality is that we trust and hope in Jesus for something far greater than merely becoming more moral or merely trying to be as unsinful as we can in this horrible sinful world. Jesus calls us to something far greater than that. Um, So our verse that was read tonight, um, I just want to highlight a a few bits of it. It says, for the creation, I think think broadly here, don't just think about humans, think just the world in general. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its 
bondage to corruption, to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So it's almost like it's in chains and it's longing to be free. It's kind of this fascinating image of, of creation, of, of the world and everything in it, in chains, longing to be free, longing to be how it once was. I'll keep going. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth, there we go, until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. There's so much aching and longing in here. There's so much yearning for something more that we don't have. As Christians living in a broken world, we know that this life matters. This life matters so much. It matters enough that Jesus chose to enter into it. This life matters, but this life is a pale pale imitation of God's original intent for humanity, for humanity and for this world. It's a pale imitation. You know, sin and brokenness has, has pulled the wool down, pull, pull, pulled the wool down over our eyes. So we think that the reason we're on this earth, the primary reason that we're on this earth is merely to make the most out of this life, to live life to the fullest, to live life with no regrets. We become incredibly short-sighted. So Christianity and following Jesus, trusting in Jesus, isn't about limiting your fun and limiting your experience of life. It's actually about showing you that our ideas of fun and our ideas of what the experience of being a human and the experience of living should be, it's about showing us that they fall spectacularly short of what they're meant to be. They, They fall spectacularly short of what God intended, I guess, the human experience to be and life to be. At the very start of the Bible, the world's perfect, and and, and humanity is perfect. Sin messes that all up. But at the very end of the Bible, when we get a vision of the future after Jesus has returned, after King Jesus has returned, the world and humanity have been redeemed and they've been made new. They've been restored. There is no more suffering or pain. There is no boredom. There is no lack of purpose. There is no loneliness. There is no hopelessness. There is no regret. And so for now, we fall far short of that. And what we have is this condition where, I think, allow me to generalize here, I think regardless of our past, regardless of our opinions on God and Jesus and church right now, regardless on our opinions of whether we should regret things or not, I think we all ache for more in here. I think we all ache we all ache for something more, something deeper. We want greater purpose, we want greater joy, we want greater fulfillment. And often when we try to live li- uh, live lives without regret, that comes from a desire of wanting a fullness of life that just seems to be escaping us. And the world tells us to chase experiences and these experiences come in countless different forms. I don't need to, you know, go into what they might be, but we all have our different, we all have those things that pull us. We all have those things that pull us. The world tells us to chase experiences, and these experiences can be amazing, they can be fun, they can even seem to be life-changing. They can leave an incredible impact on who we are as as people, but they don't bring true and lasting satisfaction and fulfillment. There is an itch, that's probably the best way I'd describe it, an itch deep down that we're made for more. Now, I'm not sorry. 
I'm not sorry for bringing the matrix into this. Um, one, of the, one of the many reasons the matrix is so brilliant, and I could list off about 20, one of the many reasons it's so brilliant, thanks Timo, is um, Neo, who's the, is, uh, the very young Keanu Reeves in the picture there, he's, he's wrestling with something, something's off, something's wrong, and he, he can't even articulate what it is. He doesn't actually know. And there's this brilliant conversations at the start of the movie where, uh, you know, a couple of different characters who are a bit further along the journey than he is, they basically say to him, look, you don't know what you're looking for, but it's out there. And Morpheus actually at one point says, um, he says, let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life, that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind driving you mad. It is this feeling that has brought you to me. See, Neo couldn't even, Neo's the other guy, Neo couldn't even articulate what the problem was. He just knew something was missing. Something was off. People, people around him hadn't put into it. They didn't think anything was wrong, but something, he, he wanted more. He was searching for more. He knew something was off. A different way of putting it from uh, a real person who's actually a theologian is um, the famous prayer from Augustine, who's one of the most famous church fathers. You've probably heard it before. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. I'll say that again. This is Augustine's prayer. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So, coming back to the whole live life without regrets thing. In fact, often our attempts to live life to the fullest, though they might seem admirable, our attempts to live life to the fullest or live life with no regrets end up kind of being a form of self-medication. They become a distraction to comfort us, to give us pleasure or a temporary sense of purpose, but they don't ultimately satisfy us. And part of the gospel, part of the, the good news about Jesus Christ is that he is actually calling his people to a fullness of life that can't be found just by chasing worldly experiences. Now we need to realize that we are made for so much more than simply maximizing our fun and maximizing our experiences of this life. In fact, our, um, our shortcomings and failings in this lifetime, you know, the, what we call sin, our regrets, when dealt with rightly, that can actually give us a stronger yearning for the world to be made right again. Isn't, isn't that weird? Like you, you'd think that the best, way to, the best way to have a healthy view of what life should be would be to, 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 to get rid of your regrets. But I think when we approach it in, in, with the eyes of the gospel, you bring your regrets to Jesus, it actually gives you a clearer picture, it gives you a, a, a deeper yearning for the world to actually be the way it should be. It gives us a yearning and a desire for Jesus to come back and fix things because actually we want more than what we've got here right now. This is where it mentions in Romans 8, you know, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to, corrupt, to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. We desire the future. We, we yearn for that. We want Jesus to come back and put things back to how they should be. And that's healthy. 
It's healthy to actually look forward to, to the future. It's healthy to be, to be eager for Jesus to come back and fix things. And sometimes when we acknowledge our regret, when we acknowledge how far short we fall of where we should be, that actually gives us a healthy yearning for Jesus to come back and fix things. It's healthy to desire him to come back and fix us. Um, all right, so I've quoted Paul, I've quoted Augustine, and this is from the renowned pastor and theologian Carl Robinson. You're welcome, mate. He said, and I actually, I actually love this, having regrets doesn't rob today of its value. It helps us see that this world is not all it should be. Acknowledging brokenness is to acknowledge a desire for a world without pain. I think that's very, very true. And that's where we come to the good news. The good news is that coming before Jesus with a whole lot of regret and acknowledging that regret, instead of sweeping it to the side, instead of ignoring it, acknowledging that regret, it actually brings joy. It actually brings joy. It brings so much more joy than, than sweeping to the side or, or not wanting to acknowledge our, our shortcomings in the first place. And part of this joy is what I just explained. It's this joy in the future of when, of when Jesus comes back and makes everything new. But it doesn't just bring joy in the future. It brings joy right now. Let's just go back to Judah and David for a sec. There's two, two, two guys from the Old Testament I talked about at the start. Two, two very important, uh, otherwise you know, considered heroes of the Bible whose, whose immense epic stuff-ups led to amazing stuff happening. It led to, led to Jesus being, being born. Now, I'll bet that if they were with us today, they'd be stoked what God did with it. They'd be stoked with how God redeemed it and restored it. But I think a part of them would still be... Would still be um, I don't know if broken is the right word, but I guess a healthy brokenness. They still feel some regret there about what actually, um, about the hurt that their mistakes made. And because, because their road was so rocky, because their road was so rocky, they look back on that and they feel regret. They see how much they needed God to take that and do something wonderful with it. And now me, I experienced that when I look at Jesus dying for me, when I, look, when I look at what it cost, they would have looked at the cost, Judah and David would have looked at the cost that they caused to their families, to, to David's kingdom even. There was immense cost there. And I feel that when I look at Jesus having to go to the cross for me and for us. I rejoice that he went to the cross for me. But it also breaks my heart that it cost that much. And I think that's healthy. That is healthy to reflect on how much it cost for me to be brought into the family of God. It cost Jesus so much. If We, we can't even comprehend it. Maybe we will one day. But if, if we were to fully comprehend how much weight was on his shoulders as he was on that cross, if we were to fully comprehend just how much our sin cost and just how much it cost him in love to take that, if we fully comprehended that, I think it would break us. I think it would emotionally break us. Maybe we'll understand it one day, I'm not sure. But when we look at what Jesus had to do for us, we should feel regret. We should feel regret that it cost that much, that it took that to save us. And yet at the same time, we should just feel so incredibly free and so incredibly liberated 
because our regret, our sin, our, our, whatever you want to call it, it's been dealt with. When, when we're in Christ, when we know Christ, it's been dealt with. Jesus didn't push it to the side. He didn't fail to acknowledge it. He acknowledged it fully. He faced it head on and he defeated it. He defeated it. And so at the cross, we have regret, I guess regret and love sort of come together and, and, and Jesus faces the regret and he defeats it. And love triumphs. And Tim, you know, I'm, I'm quoting a lot of smart people tonight. Um, Tim Keller, I, I won't make any Holy Trinity jokes about uh, Tim Keller, Carl Robinson and uh, Augustine. That'd be blasphemous. But um, Tim Keller puts it better than I ever could. He says, the gospel is this. This is Tim Keller's words. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we could ever dare believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And when we, when we acknowledge our sin, when we acknowledge our regret, when we acknowledge our brokenness, we find forgiveness. We find freedom. We find liberation in Jesus So for us, day to day, I don't know about you, but I might not have major regrets every day. I might go a whole week without having a major regret, but that just kind of illustrates how narrow my view is of, of how I should be living my life and what life would be like if I fully lived it as a child of God. I fall so drastically short of that. So in the day to day, when we do fall short, when we might not have done something horrible to, to hurt someone or some monumental stuff up, but we're just not feeling it. You know, you're feeling, you're feeling bored, you're feeling cut off from people, you're feeling lonely, you're feeling uh, insecure, you're feeling, um, you know, unworthy. In the day-to-day -day when we're just, we're just trying to wade through that stuff that life throws at us, we remember that Jesus doesn't make light of those struggles. He doesn't make light of it. He doesn't make light of our regrets, of our shortcomings. He, he, he enters into that problem. He entered into that problem, became one of us, and defeated our sin. He faced it, he defeated it, he defeated death, and he paid the, paid the price for it. And when we acknowledge our regrets, when we acknowledge them, when we face them, even though that can be uncomfortable, can be a bit of a hit, hit to the pride, we acknowledge that we would be lost and dead without Jesus. And we rejoice that he loves us enough to rescue us from all of that. He rescued us from so much. And we look forward with longing, we look forward with eagerness for the day that he comes back and makes it all right again. That's going to be a wonderful day. Um, I'll invite the band back up and let's, let's, let's still ourselves before God as we prepare to worship again and let's pray. Lord God, we just we have so much to praise you for, we don't know where to start. And part of the problem is that we find it so hard to get our head around all this, that we are so broken and, and sinful and in need of, of, of rescuing, and yet we are so incredibly, infinitely loved. We thank you that where our regret and our sin was so great, your love and your grace was greater. Help us to live life day by day, knowing that you have defeated defeated that. You have defeated our regret and our sin. We can bring that to you. We can find freedom. We can find joy in you. For those of us that haven't experienced that, 
that don't know if that's actually real or if that's something that just gets talked about in churches. We just ask, Lord, that your spirit breaks through and gives us all a greater understanding of what that actually means. Gives us a, a, a tangible feeling of just how much you love us. We praise you and we worship you.